0: Hey, good morning. Week four of Lent. And you guys are still here. You did it. We keep on telling you how awful you are and you keep coming back. (laughs) Like Rocky 3 You're like, hit me again. Hit me again. You just keep coming back by the grace of God. You know, they kind of, I think, modern evangelicalism in the modern church has mostly ditched a lot of the, a lot of some of the historic practices of the Christian faith, um, like Lent, because it's not, quote-unquote, secret sensitive um, And I get that, but also, God is here. and He's present. And it can be Lent. It cannot be Lent. And he might jack up your life i pray and he does that. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and get that open to John chapter 9. As you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would open up His word for us and uh, rock our worlds. Heavenly Father, I want that person whose life changes this morning, I want that person to be me. I want to be that man. I don't want to be the same person when I walk out of this gathering that I was when I walked into this gathering. I want to be more joyful. I want to be more Christ-like. I want to be filled with more love. And I really believe that you can do that because I really believe that you're real and you're really here. And so, Lord, as we examine the beating and mockery of the Son of God at the hands of Roman soldiers, just pray that you would speak to us. It's it's when we read the Bible as nothing more than a historical textbook that we see the whip in the hands of Roman soldiers. But when we read the Bible as God's word of salvation for us, we see that the whip is in our hands. And that doesn't lead to condemnation. That doesn't lead to death. Somehow, some way that leads to joy. I've been meditating and pondering a phrase that our Episcopalian friends use during Lent. Our Episcopalian brothers and sisters, they have a phrase they use to describe Lent. They call it bright sadness. I can't imagine capturing the season any better than that. Bright sadness, there's some profound way that the deeper we go into our own darkness and the more we acknowledge our sin, somehow the brighter our hope gets in Jesus and the brighter he shines in our life and the brighter our joy becomes. And so, Lord, it's not our goal to be the city's saddest church. But somehow, some way, when we're honest about our sins and sorrow has a place in our hearts and in our gatherings, somehow, some way, that is a means of us becoming the city's most joyful church. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would accomplish that in our lives this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. All right, so, uh, like Carlos said, Uh, I mentioned there we're in week week four of our Lent sermon series. We're calling it for the joy set before him for these six weeks leading up to Easter. Every week what we're doing is we're examining a different portrait of the sufferings of Jesus. That's going to lead us all the way up to Easter Sunday when we examine the resurrection. But we want to see every little bit of Jesus's suffering. The whole story unfold. And so it's been unfolding in front of us in slow motion. In the first week we uh we looked at the spiritual pain of Jesus accepting his suffering. We join Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and we notice how the cup of God's wrath was over his head and Jesus accepted that. In the second week, we looked at the second portrait of Jesus, which was the relational pain of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. A man, a friend who he invested time and energy and effort to, turning him in and ratting him out to the religious authorities. And then in week three, we looked at what the religious authorities did with that. We looked at the social pain of Jesus being publicly condemned by religious leaders. Leaders that were well-trusted, well-admired, well-looked-up-to in the community. Those men condemned Jesus. Publicly. And so this morning we're going to begin to dial in on the physical pain of Jesus' sufferings. We are at portrait number four Jesus is beaten and mocked. Portrait four. Jesus is beaten and mocked. We're in John 19, and uh, as you're getting there in your Bibles, a lot of you aren't going to be happy with me today. Because I'm going to work with a controlling illustration, a controlling metaphor that maybe borders on being too vulgar. But to defend myself, I I think that our view of the sufferings of Jesus as modern Christians, I think it's too sanitized. And so I'm willing to take a risk, push the envelope a little bit, to wake us up to the reality of how deep and how dark the sufferings of Christ were. So towards that end, here we go. In nineteen eighty-seven, the National Endowment for the Arts paid the artist Andre Serrano twenty thousand dollars to create a piece of art. Twenty thousand bucks. Twenty thousand smackaroos for one piece of art. This photograph that Serrano ended up making went on to win the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Arts Award. It was a smash hit with a lot of the art community, but the photo was met with hostility by some fundamentalist religious folks. The artist galleries where the 1987 photograph were hung Those art galleries were sometimes vandalized and they were sometimes even picketed by Christians. There were even some attempts whenever that piece of art, that photograph was hung up at an art gallery. There were even attempts from time to time by fundamentalist Christians to break into the art gallery to try to steal the photograph and to destroy it. And why? Because to make this photograph, what Serrano did Was he took a plastic crucifix with Jesus on it, took a bottle, and filled that bottle with his own urine, submerged the crucifix into the bottle, and took a picture of it. That's the photograph. That's the $20,000 piece of art that Serrano made. That's the piece of art that ended up winning the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Arts Award. And uh, the reason why I'm bringing this photograph up isn't just to make your stomach turn. It's not just to put a bad taste in your mouth. But I think it poses an interesting question. The 1987 photograph, which is what we're going to call it. Because I like my job. (laughs) You can, don't worry, I'm not going to put the picture up. Okay, I like, I like pastoring you guys. But the 1987 photograph poses an interesting question for us during the Lent season. And that question is very simple. Is the photograph of Jesus submerged in a bottle blasphemous? Or does it wake us up to the reality of the beatings and mockery that Jesus truly endured? Those are our two options. Is it Blasphemous? Or does it actually reveal the glory of Jesus and cause us to worship? We'll come back to that photograph. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We doing alright? We doing alright? All right. John nineteen. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. This is the word of God. It shows us what happens, and it's for our joy. You guys can have a seat. Three things we see happen in this text flogged, mocked, struck. I remember a couple months ago, six months ago, seven months ago, eight months ago, I was in my house, and my four-year-old son, Russell, was in a different room, and I remember hearing his voice cry out to me, and there was an urgency in his voice, and so immediately what I did was I sprinted from, the, from upstairs, down the stairs, and ran into the dining room, afraid of what I would see. Um, bracing myself for the worst because of the urgency in his voice. And when I got to the dining room, there was Russell, my four-year-old son, pointing at a red scribble on the wall. And he said, Dad, Dad, somebody colored on our wall. (laughs) And I said, somebody. He said, yeah. And I was like, okay. Della's asleep. Mom's gone. It's you and it's me. Who do you think did it, buddy? And he said, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, bro, you want to go down this route? I was like, what's in your hand right now? <laughs> and he opened his little, his little hand and right there in the palm of his little grubber was a red crayon. And so I took that red crayon I held it up in front of the red scribble and I said, is that the same color? And he said, yes. And I said, who do you think did it? And he said, somebody. (laughs) I said, okay, buddy. Um, I think we cracked the case. This crayon matches this scribble and this crayon was just in your hand. The crayon's in your hand. And look, I know that I use my kids in way too many illustrations on Sunday mornings. I totally get it. But you have to realize that they're, they're also two years old and four years old. And so in a couple years, like in five or ten years, they're going to kill me if I ever say this stuff in front of you guys, right? And so in ten years, I can't bring them up in illustrations. So we got to enjoy it now, okay? The crayon's in your hand. Liturgy illustrated that perfectly. The poem illustrates it perfectly. Here is Jesus in our text, flogged, mocked, struck, And as we go deep into the heart of darkness this morning and examine it, we're taking a close look at Jesus being beaten and mocked at the hands of trained Roman soldiers. There's a flogging. There's a crown of thorns jammed into his head. There's a purple robe flung around him as a parody. They're going to strike him across the face with punches. And as we observe this scene from the suffering of Jesus... It should feel a lot like looking at the coloring on the wall. And what I want us to know. That when we look at this. When we look at the coloring on the wall. Is I want you to know that the crayon is in your hand. When we look at the cross of Jesus. And when we look at the sufferings of Jesus. As modern westerners. We tend to ask the question. Who crucified Jesus? And we tend to answer that by saying. Somebody. But the coloring on the wall. Matches the crayon in your hand. The suffering that Jesus endured matches the sin that you've committed. So the flogging, as difficult as it is to look at it this way, the flogging, it was you and it was me. The whip is in your hand. Verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That doesn't mean that Pilate himself flogged him. He handed him over to Roman soldiers. Um, So after the religious authorities condemned Jesus and wanted Jesus to be squished, they handed him over to Pilate. And when Pilate examines Jesus, Pilate actually doesn't find Jesus to be guilty. One of the reasons why Pilate doesn't find Jesus to be guilty is because he can't get a straight answer out of Jesus. Does this dude think he's the son of God? Is this dude like actually trying to be the king of Rome? What's going on here? He couldn't really get a clear answer out of Jesus. And on top of that, Pilate just didn't view this first century Jewish carpenter as much of a real threat to Caesar's throne. But the religious authorities, they are hounding on Pilate to crucify Jesus. Remember, they want to squish Jesus because he's a threat to their establishment. And so as a result of that, they're trying to get Pilate to do the dirty work because Jewish law won't allow them to crucify Jesus for what Jesus has said. So they're like a hot potato. They just throw it to Pilate and they want Pilate to take out the trash. And so when Pilate hands Jesus over to the Roman soldiers, he's found him in innocent, so Pilate's got a really clear motive when he gives them over to the Roman soldiers. What he wants to do is he wants those soldiers to beat Jesus to a bloody pulp to evoke enough sympathy from the crowd. Because Pilate doesn't actually want to kill him. If he, can, if he can hand him over to the Roman soldiers and they can beat on Jesus enough, then the Jewish crowd might be satisfied with that punishment and then Pilate wouldn't have to crucify Jesus. So to do that, the Roman soldiers have to give Jesus a beating that satisfies the bloodlust of the Jews right now. And of course, the solution is what? Look at your text. Flogging. This is a well-documented historical practice that Rome had. Flogging, as administered by Roman soldiers, was designed not to just be as painful as possible, but also as humiliating as possible. The point of flogging was to turn human beings into ancient billboards. That was the point. It wanted to be public, painful, The point of flogging was to turn human beings into bloody billboards so that ancient people would look at the victims of flogging the same way that modern people look at big billboards. It was a sign. It was a big sign that had a clear message. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. Okay? Don't, don't. Don't try to turn on Rome. Don't try to go after Caesar's throne. If you do, this is what will happen to you. And so since the point of flogging was to dehumanize their victims, they treated the victims less like people and they treated them more like animals. What they would do is they would strip their victims nude and then they would tie their victims to a post like a dog on a leash. And there were often more than one torturers who were present, more than one person who would whip them. That way the beating could continue even after the soldier exhausted himself from all of the flogging and all of the whipping. Here's one commentator on the type of whip that they developed specifically for scourging. Quote, The favored instrument was a whip with leather strips that were fitted with pieces of bones or metal. And the beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died. Eyewitness records report that such brutal scourgings would leave the victims with their bones exposed and sometimes their entrails exposed. End quote. So what do they do in verse one? They tie Jesus to a post and they whip him and whip him And whip him. And when that soldier gets tired. He takes the whip. And he hands it to another soldier. And that soldier whips him. And whips him. And whips him. Until the skin rips off of Jesus' back. in meaty chunks. And exposes his skeleton. And when you think of the chunks of Jesus' flesh. Flying through the air. And scattering all around him. This event brings to mind the 1987 photograph. And this event in the text and in history makes the 1987 photograph look like a Disney Pixar movie. If you really want to understand the shame and sufferings of Jesus, the 1987 photograph actually doesn't go far enough. It's actually too tame. You have to turn to the scriptures where Jesus isn't being submerged in a bottle. He's being submerged in pain and humiliation. And how do they humiliate him? Verse two. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. So, since Jesus claimed to be king by claiming to be the son of God, the soldiers thought it would be funny. They thought it would be funny to dress up Jesus like a king. So while Jesus... And his muscles were twitching and his nerves were raw. One of the soldiers took off his cloak and he draped it around Jesus like a pretend king's robe. And if you know anything about environments like this, whether it's the locker room or whether it's the military or whether it's ancient soldiers, they thought that this was funny. There would have been giggling and somewhere in the shuffle of all the beating and all the mocking, all the laughing one of the soldiers thought it would be funny to continue the play by making a crown from thorns. Here's one scholar, quote, The crown of thorns was probably twisted together from the long spikes of the date palm, fashioned into a mock imitation of ancient crowns. The intention of the soldiers was rough mockery, but the long thorns of up to 12 inches would have added to the blood and pain, end quote. And it's worth remembering that Jesus lived and grew up in an honor and shame culture. And so for Jesus, you have to realize that the humiliation probably would have stung as deeply as the flogging did as well. And it gets worse. Since the robe got some giggles... And since the crown got some laughs from the soldiers, why not continue to make this event into a sick, twisted, and sadistic theatrical play? What happens next? Verse 3. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. So what the soldiers are doing is they're humorously lining up before Jesus One by one, snickering. And one by one, they bend on their knees to Jesus with a crap-eating grin on their face and with a joking tone in their voice. And they say, all hail the king of the Jews. And then they end the charade by striking him across the face. And what they think they're accomplishing is pretty clear. This little theater play, what they think they're accomplishing is degrading Jesus. They think that they're degrading Jesus by showing just how outrageous it is that this foolish Jewish carpenter would ever claim to be a king. They're saying, look at this guy. This guy claiming to be a king just getting beat up by Roman soldiers. Can you imagine? you imagine a king who bleeds on the ground in a crumpled pile? Can you imagine a king who gets beat up by his own soldiers? What a fool. They're degrading him. And to the average first century bystander, Jesus would have looked pathetic. They didn't have the New Testament. You know, they weren't like, oh, no, I totally get it. He has to die to atone for our sins. And then three days later, he's going to be resurrected victoriously so that we might be resurrected in glory. They didn't have the New Testament. And so when they looked at Jesus taking a beating, they thought, What a loser. And I know it's uncomfortable pressing pause in this moment. You're like, dude, it's all week long, man. I just need some encouragement. I want to come to church for some optimism. And this is what we're talking about. Can't we talk about something else, bro? Can't we talk about something else, pastor? Can't we talk about how God has wonderful plans for your life to prosper Do that bit, pastor. Do that text. Instead, we're pressing pause on the sufferings and humiliations of Jesus. Why you got to rub our nose in the carpet? And while we're at it and asking questions, why does the suffering of Jesus have to be so horrific? Why do it have to be so prolonged? Why does it have to be so undignified? Why couldn't Jesus' death be more like the electric chair? So the guy could die with some dignity. Lights out. Painless. Mostly private. Still a little dignity. Why, why, why has it got to be tied to a post, stripped and beaten before hanging on a cross? Why? The answer to that question, why, is pretty simple. Um, it's because people go through real pain and suffering in this world. And a God, like so many people believe in, a God who looks at us in our suffering and our pain and is perplexed and thinks, I wonder what that's like. That God is no comfort to somebody who suffers. A God who looks at us in our pain and confusion spreads across his face. There's no comfort in that. But a God who can look down at us in our suffering. And in our humiliation, and can whisper in our heart, I know what that feels like. That'll do something to your soul. Amen. Like That God will fill you with some comfort. And when we look at the sufferings and when we look at the beatings and when we look at the mockery of Jesus, we see that God in Jesus. We see a God who has come to earth to feel the pain of the world. We see a God who has come to earth to suffer the sufferings of the world. We see a God who's come to the world to take on the likeness of human flesh and identify with people who go through hell on earth theologically and that's the God that we see in Jesus. And that God fills us with comfort. And so that's why we gotta be honest about the sufferings of Jesus. That's why we gotta rub our noses in the carpet. That's why we gotta take a good hard look at the soldiers who are whipping, mocking, and striking, trying their hardest to make Jesus look like a loser. What are they doing? They're degrading him. That's what they think. Frederick Douglass, though, in an epic historical moment, Frederick Douglass was once traveling on a train, and he was asked to move and ride in the baggage car because he was a black man riding on a mostly white train. So he was asked to sit in the back because of his race. And a white bystander who watched this racism unfold, he ran up to Frederick Douglass, ran up to him, and he said, oh, "'I'm so sorry, Mr. Douglass, that you've been degraded in this manner.'" Right, he sees this happen and he runs up to Frederick Douglass and he says, I'm so sorry that you got, that you got degraded like this. And what Douglass says is fantastic. It, I mean, it's a testimony to the strength and to the beauty of African American Christian spirituality and all that it's endured and a testimony to the spirit of Jesus. But Frederick Douglass says this to the white bystander. He says, and listen carefully, he says, Sir, they cannot degrade Frederick Douglass. The soul that is within me, no man can degrade. I am not the one being degraded on account of this treatment, but those who are inflicting it upon me. Like, don't you love that? They cannot degrade Frederick Douglass. In that same way, they cannot degrade Jesus Christ. It's hilarious to the soldiers to to look at him and to beat him up and to think of a king being beaten up and mocked. Look at your king! wearing a crown of thorns. Look at your king bleeding in front of everybody like they think it's a joke, but they're telling the truth. Like they're literally telling the truth. That's what true leadership looks like. The real crown does have thorns. The real king does rule the nations and cosmos through his blood. And so the humiliation of Jesus doesn't degrade Jesus, it reveals Jesus. And so when we look at him, receiving his mockings, receiving his beatings, we see glory. We don't feel sorry for Jesus. We see victory, right? We see what real kingship looks like. We see what real deity looks like. We see what real leadership looks like. No man can degrade Jesus Christ. And by the way, in Christ, no man can degrade you. Like, I can't say this loudly enough. Jesus, and this is the essence of the gospel, Jesus was dehumanized so that you would be rehumanized. So that when you came to Jesus in grace and faith, your dignity would be restored. The image of God might be restored in you and you would be given value and worth that is not subject to circumstances. Can't be taken away by people. Can't be taken away by critics, right? There, it's an indomitable Dignity. No man can degrade Koldike. That's not to say that they can't try to do to me what they did to Jesus. They might. They could. Right? I mean, they can mock you. They can humiliate you. They can post on social media about you. They can cancel you. But they can't dehumanize you. It cannot take away the dignity that Jesus has given you through the gospel. The world cannot dehumanize you and the reason why your dignity can't be taken from you isn't because, wouldn't that be a lovely thought, it's because Jesus substituted himself for you. He bore the crown of thorns that was mankind's curse to bear. The crown of thorns which is fitted to your head went on his. And he took on and he wore the embarrassing robe of the Roman soldier so that you could wear his robe of righteousness. He was stripped so you'd be clothed. And listen to me. No man can take the robe of Jesus's righteousness off of you. It's been fastened to you by the sovereignty of God. That's your belt, the sovereignty of God. And this great exchange, Jesus being stripped so that you'd be clothed, Jesus taking on your mockery so that you would get dignity, Jesus taking on your sin so that you would get righteousness. This great exchange, as beautiful as it is, it has its roots in this horrific mistreatment of Jesus at the hands of Roman soldiers. And so we look at this and we don't flinch. So think of Jesus tied to a post. And as you think of Jesus being tied to a post, being flogged, being mocked, and being struck, it sheds an interesting light on that 1987 photograph, doesn't it? It makes that 1987 photograph look like a G-rated movie. In fact, there was this wonderful, wonderful interview in the year 2000 with a, a Roman Catholic nun who passed away a couple of years ago. Her name was Sister Wendy. And in the interview, they were talking about art and the purpose of art. And Sister Wendy has this lovely diatribe she goes on about how we should resist comforting art. Because it ends up doling us to the realities of the world. And so when they went into that little diatribe. The interview asked her about the 1987 photograph. And as a conservative Roman Catholic. What you would expect her to do is to attack or protest the photograph. But she doesn't. She says quote. I thought the photograph was helpful. I thought he was saying in his photograph. In a rather simplistic way. That this is what we are doing to Christ. Christ. We are not treating him with reverence. We live vulgar lives. And in doing so. We put Christ in a bottle of urine. In practice. But there is one huge difference. That we have to understand. Between the 1987 photograph. And the real Christ. Being beaten and mocked. And going through his passion. And that difference is this. The plastic crucifix was submerged by the will of man, but the person Jesus Christ was submerged by his own will. He was submerged not into a bottle, but into the beatings and mockeries that we deserve. He was submerged into the penalty of sin that we earned with our crooked lives. He exchanged places with us and joyfully placed himself in the hands of abusive Roman soldiers according to his own will. And so he not only chose the suffering. But he sovereignly provided the strength necessary for the soldiers to whip. He gave them the muscles to strike with. He gave them the hands to hold the whip. Hands were Jesus' idea. He not only chose to endure the mockery. He sovereignly provided the oxygen necessary for the mocking. He not only took the punches willingly, but in the strange counsel of the divine mystery of his providence, perhaps we could even say that he guided the punches. So yeah, the mockery and the suffering is heartbreaking. It is, and it's right for it to break your heart. But you have to remember that Jesus did not endure his mockery reluctantly. And he did not endure his mockery With regret. And he definitely didn't endure his mockery as a victim. He did it. For the joy set before him. Pretty awesome right? What an awesome Christ we worship. Pray with me. Heavenly Father. The... We shouldn't be afraid of accuracy. Accuracy. We shouldn't feel like we have to sanitize Jesus and sanitize his story in order for him to be glorified. We have nothing to fear by opening our Bibles. We have nothing to fear by aiming for clarity and aiming for accuracy. The more clearly we see Jesus, the more deeply we experience his joy. And so we don't flinch. We don't sanitize. We don't pretend like the crayon's not in our hand. We acknowledge reality. And in acknowledging reality, we're filled with joy so that we can actually be of some good for this world. So I pray you would do that in our church's life this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.